Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is half the volume it was just a few decades ago. It is steadily receding, creating a number of problems for the environment, recreation, and wildlife. And it's an indicator of the larger problem of climate change and poor water management in the West. The Great Salt Lake and the surrounding water resources are important for tribes, and tribal leaders are bringing solutions. We'll talk more about that coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Montana Governor Greg Gianforte has asked federal officials to start a process that will swap nearly 37,000 acres of state land on the Flathead Indian Reservation for federal lands elsewhere in the state. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports the swap is part of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Federal Water Settlement. In a letter to the secretaries of the U.S. Departments of Interior and Agriculture, Gene Forte called for talks between the state, CSKT, and the federal government to begin. As part of the CSKT Water Compact passed by Congress in 2020, the parties have five years to complete the land exchange. Many of the state trust lands on the Flathead Reservation are difficult to access and are primarily used for agricultural and livestock grazing leases. Gianforte says the state aims to trade those to the tribe in exchange for land from the federal government with more access and ability to generate revenue. The final say on which state lands on the reservation will be swapped for federal properties will be up to the state land board. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau recently visited a First Nation in British Columbia, where an investigation is underway into deaths from former residential schools. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, Trudeau also came with money for support. Trudeau says the nearly $3 million will go to continuing support healing for those who survived the school and for those families that did not. Ottawa already provided nearly $1.5 million earlier this year for research efforts into the deaths and disappearances of children who attended the former St. Joseph's Mission Residential School near the Williams Lake First Nation in British Columbia. Trudeau also says there will be more money to come. It's not just the history of Indigenous peoples. It's Canada's history. And it is on all of us to be part of the learning, the grieving, the truth and the reconciliation. Trudeau said it's also important that everything is done to make sure that all the information, all the records be made fully available to the community to find the truth and to honor the memory of all the lives that were lost. Trudeau said he was also there to listen to the elders and community members about what the path forward looks like. He also met with school survivors and others at Williams Lake, including the chief and council members. Earlier this year, the possible remains of more than 90 bodies were found on the site of the former school. The St. Joseph's Mission Residential School closed in 1981. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. 
A sacred stone in a park in Lawrence, Kansas, is being returned to the Kaw Nation. The 25-ton stone is culturally and spiritually significant to the tribe. It was removed in 1929 from its natural location at the confluence of two creeks and dedicated to pioneers as part of the city's 75th anniversary. The Kaw Nation, the city, and community organizers are working with the University of Kansas to ensure safe relocation of the stone to land held by the Kaw Nation. On Monday, the Mellon Foundation announced a grant to help support the stone's relocation, build infrastructure at the natural site, and develop an interactive program there and at what will be the stone's former site in Lawrence. The grant is among four new monuments projects. In 2020, the foundation launched the project to assess monuments across the U.S. and to preserve the stories of those who often have been denied historical recognition. The St. Regis Mohawk Tribe in New York is considering a name change. Tribal voters will have an opportunity to approve or reject the proposed new name Aquasasne Mohawk Tribe in a referendum in June. Years ago, tribal citizens renamed their zip code to Aquasasne. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Native American Disability Law Center, a non-for-profit 501c3 at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Utah's Great Salt Lake is a natural wonder. It's the largest natural lake west of the Mississippi River and a picturesque resource spanning a large swath of Utah desert land. Long before it was an inspiration for Brigham Young and his Mormon followers, the Great Salt Lake was an important location for dozens of tribes, some of which remain close by. But the lake is receding. The water level has declined steadily for decades, and it has reached its lowest volume in almost 200 years, driven by drought and increasing demand for the water that supplies the lake. It affects wildlife, air quality, tourism, and recreation, and the tribes that have counted on the lake for centuries. Researchers have very few solutions, but some tribes say native science could help. Today, we're going to hear about why the Great Salt Lake is important and what can be done to help it. We also want to hear from you. How can tribes protect the Great Salt Lake and other water resources? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. As always, that's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining the show from Cedar City, Utah, is Tamara Borchardt Slayton. She is chairperson of the Indian Peaks Band of Paiutes and the vice chairperson for the Paiute Indian Tribe of Utah. Welcome to the show, Tamara. Hi, thank you for having me. Also joining the conversation from Logan, Utah, is the former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, Darren Perry. Welcome to the show as well, Darren. 
Thank you for having me, and it's good to have Tamara on here. She's a good friend. Well, I'm glad we were able to reconnect you folks here on the air, Native America Calling. That's what we like to do. Tamara, this uh, decreasing water level of the Great Salt Lake, um, really alarming. How, how serious is this? What do you know about it? I don't know a lot, but what I do know is that with, and this is any situation where water is involved, that natural resources, that natural resource, um, once it's eliminated, it affects the ecosystem that's around it. And so there's, uh, it triggers a bunch of different effects that take place. So it's quite alarming that this isn't, this isn't something that isn't talked about um, every single day and how we can conserve and what we need to do to conserve. Because uh, without water, essentially there's no life. Right, absolutely. And what is the significance and, and cultural importance of the lake to, to the regional tribes there in Utah? I know the Great Salt Lake area was a gathering place uh, for many of the tribes in the state of Utah. If you look at some of the first written encounters with Native, Native inhabitants in Utah uh, through the like Escalante journals that are out there, I know the Paiute. Uh, were the first inhabitants that the Father Does Dominguez and Escalante encountered at the Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. And Darren, let me ask you, um, what do you know about this crisis uh, with the the waters and and the lake receding? How big an issue is this? You know, it's a a large issue. I, I was lucky enough to grow up a mile from the lake. And so uh, the lake was always something that's been a part of my life since childhood. And we'd go down there and, and over the years, you know, we'd have rising water levels and then decreasing and it kind of masked the problem that we have today of, of a lot of people using a lot of water in many different ways. And so now that we're in this drought that we're in, uh, we don't have those I mean, at one time they built pumps to pump the water out of the lake into the desert because there was too much water. But uh, with climate change, what it is and and other just, you know, the state has grown from one million to three million just over the last few years. And so the pressures that uh, are there on the lake are just are, are have never been there before. And, you know, this last legislative session. Uh, all of Utah's lawmakers live around this lake. The lake's a rather large uh, body of water. And so, you know, what struck me in this whole thing is we we live next to this this lake that uh, so many things uh, need. And uh, it didn't really hit the legislature until they took a Black Hawk helicopter ride over the lake this year. And uh, all the lawmakers did. And all of a sudden now it becomes such a huge importance because they can see, you know, it's shrunk by more than 51%. And they can see really for the first time, even though they, they live right on the edge of it, the first time the devastation that is going to take place because of the lake. So uh, the lake has always been significantly important to, to all of our native people. And, uh, 
we just look at things differently. We look at life. We look at the lake as having a spirit and as having as much rights as we do as people. And so when you have that worldview, that indigenous worldview of, of nature, of the environment that we live in, uh, being able to be good stewards and, and making sure that we're doing things right uh, becomes increasingly important. You mentioned these legislators traveling in, in the Black Hawk helicopter, and whenever I fly over Salt Lake, it's really obvious from the sky how far the shores of the lake have receded, and much of the perimeter of what once was the lake just looks like these huge swaths of salty, muddy silt. I guess that's the best way I would describe it, and it's just so startling. And is it just so many people moving to Utah and, and just lots more people, um, tourists, recreational use. Is that what's really causing this issue with, with the water crisis there in the lake? You know, that's, that's certainly one of the big factors is when you increase your population, you know, from 1 million to 3 million, that's going to require some water. But what a lot of people don't realize is that more than 60% of the water that's used and, and, you know, the, people look at the Great Salt Lake and goes, well, they can't use the Great Salt Lake water because it's so salty. And uh, But the tributaries, the four major tributaries that dump into that are fresh, clean water. And so uh, those fresh tributaries are not dumping water into the Great Salt Lake at the amount that they used to because of the amount of people that you said. But uh, so making sure that we handle that. But the second big issue is really agriculture. Uh, more than 60% of the water that goes into the lake is used by farmers and ranchers. And so we've got to figure out a way to do it better and uh, smart ag and, and just engaging people that uh, we can do it better with less water. And then you factor on top of all of that, the climate change issues that we face today and the huge drought that we're in here in Utah. And so much less fresh water than before. The water, we're using the water before it even gets to the lake. So uh, we've got to start doing some things that are going to make a difference. And Darren, you mentioned climate change, and I know you've gone on record as saying Utah leaders don't want to address the monster in the room, which is climate change. Can you talk about that a little bit more depth? Yeah, I, you know, for years, we live, Tamara and I live in one of the most conservative states in the country. And, and historically, if you look at conservatism and, and even nationally, uh, with our lawmakers naturally, they tend to put profits in extraction and depletion and short-term things over long-term things. And, and so, you know, that's, that's been the mantra of conservatism in the country today. And, and uh, we'll worry about it later. Let's use it now and worry about it later. But uh, the monster in the room is climate change. Now, when we have droughts and mega heat and, and all other things, and we have less and less water, uh, now it begins to be a problem. You know, the depletion We've depleted it now, and now what are we going to do? And so for the first time, you know, the legislators, after they took that helicopter ride, had an aha moment, I like to say, where they actually looked at 
what's going on and going, oh my goodness, it is a problem. And uh, how are we going to look at it? And there was a few bills proposed that are kind of a Band-Aid approach to it, but at least they're recognizing that there's an issue now. And so uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the legislation that was proposed, but it's just a beginning of where we need to go with legislation and making sure that we reduce those greenhouse emissions and doing other things that can slow this whole process down. And so uh, I'm grateful that our legislators are finally uh, understanding the problem, the elephant in the room, actually. And so uh, while I, I hold hope for the future, but I think there's a lot of work to do, a lot of work we can all do. And, and you mentioned earlier, you know, the indigenous perspective is, is vitally important. So, you know, science can only do so much, and all the science in the world isn't going to uh, make up for our selfish behaviors. And so, uh, but I believe with all my heart, when you combine that science with indigenous wisdom and values and how we look at uh, the environment that we live in and the environment that has as many rights as anybody else does. When you combine those two efforts, you almost have to change your way of thinking. And I think uh, another year of a big drought here in Utah, people are actually going to start the way they, they're going to have to rethink the way they've thought, you know, throughout their life. that water isn't in endless supply and we're going to have to make sure we're doing things right. Indigenous Wisdom. We're going to talk more about that after the break. If you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you have any observations with regard to water resource management in Native communities or a specific take on the Great Salt Lake in Utah, give us a call. We'll be back right after the break. Radioactive uranium mining waste is a toxic legacy many residents of the Navajo Nation confront every day. Now billions of dollars in cleanup money offer the potential for new jobs, native-owned businesses, and a safer environment. We'll talk about the new opportunity along with the continued threat of mining waste on the next Native America Calling. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're hearing about the diminishing water level at the Great Salt Lake and what can be done about it. In addition to affecting the major metropolitan area of Salt Lake City, the dwindling resource poses several threats to local tribes. Give us a call to get into the conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Tamara, before we went to break, we were listening to Darren. He was talking about not just Uh, the receding water there at Salt Lake, but just the overall water crisis there in Utah. And you're speaking with us today from Cedar City, and this is a growing tourist town in southwestern Utah that gets its water from an underground aquifer that is overdrawn. So the city is making a play to siphon water from undeveloped land in a neighboring county. So this strikes very close to home for you. What's your response to that? Um. My response to that is it isn't the solution um, to the problem, ultimately. The population size and the way that city developers or managers 
are currently um, looking at the growth and the amount of growth that we can meet, at what point are we at capacity? Only because if you continue to draw down on these uh, on the water, the aquifer obviously is overdrawn as it is here in Iron County. But uh, going and trying to develop a pipeline to bring it in, um, you've seen that everywhere in the United States with pipelines. Uh, the best example I have is with Los Angeles County and the Mulholland pipeline. And if you look at the Owens Valley, where they are siphoning that water from, it turned into a dust bowl, and they didn't listen to the Owens Paiutes, uh, the Owens Valley Band of Paiutes. And so it's that water battle has been going on for years with that nation in itself, um, trying to preserve their water rights that they have, but ultimately losing out to Los Angeles County. And that's my greatest fear is what's going to happen is Cedar City is going to take water in Beaver County, which ultimately is in the basin that um, the Indian Peaks band, because it's Pine Valley over there, Indian Peaks band, those are water rights. So once those water rights, or once that water is gone, where else are they going to try to start to siphon water from? Mm-hmm. And, and this project to to bring in water from another county there to Cedar City, how closely have the tribes been consulted with these matters? They have not been consulted. As much as um, the Bureau of Land Management, who is currently trying to do the scope of work and develop the DEIS and everything related to it, the tribes were never notified. We were notified in 2021. That's when they finally approached us. And the DEIS was, re- was released in, it's supposed to be October, and they pushed it back to December of 2021. But they had um, adequate time to notify the tribe and the bronze that it could affect, and they chose not to. And if you read the DEIS itself, and I can't remember on what page, but it's page like 53 to 56, somewhere around there. They know the tribes have rights there, and they state in the DEIS itself that if the tribes want to go and claim the water rights, they need to go do so in the court of law. And has any effort at at this point been made by the tribes to do that, to seek legal action and to to block these efforts to, to bring this water in? We haven't yet. We did reply to the DEIS because comment period, open comment, not just for tribes, but for everybody that it could affect, even um, people up north could have answered, uh, was due March 11th. And that's where we stated that it is a trust responsibility for the United States government. And BLM is under the Department of Interior, which is also under the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or in the same department. The BLM has the right to... Um, discuss this with us and they needed to discuss this in proper consultation that they chose not to do. There was no consultation that took place um, that was adequately sufficient for my band. Um, and Okay. So Tamara it, it's just gonna be a legal battle. I know I know that. If you look you could look at the Las Vegas pipeline the Los Angeles mm-hmm. pipeline was trying to do the exact same thing the Cedar City or the Pine Valley pipeline is doing, um, taking water 
out of that region and out of that aquifer. Okay. So what what could be a possible solution to address the, these water needs of, uh, of of towns like Cedar City that tribes in the area would would be okay with? I mean, are, are there is there a solution? I mean, obviously these people have used all the water that they have and they need more. I mean, what what's the answer? Some of the biggest stuff that they're, they they said, they stated that they looked at and wasn't feasible is conservation. If we got rid of the lawns in Cedar City, uh, just imagine the amount of water we could save. Because every single house in Iron County has a lawn. It's not geared toward conservation at all. Um the amount of land that they're selling, because obviously when you purchase property, you don't purchase the water. Uh, you have to purchase those water rights separately. Um, but I heard horror stories from local residents where they purchased property to build and they found out they had no water. And when they finally got water, they dug a well and there was no water for them to even use. It was all gone where there should have mm. been water. So I think it's proper planning at this point. Okay. Now you mentioned um, the EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement, and uh, where, are you, where, how far along are they in the process? Is it just the EIS at this point, or is there actually a pipeline under construction? It's just the EIS. The EIS. Oh, I can't talk this morning. Um, there's no construction as of yet. There's nothing that's taken place. Okay. And Tamara, I'm curious, is, is there a point of no return? At what point uh, is there just no reviving these waterways and, and the Great Salt Lake and in this crisis with just such a, such a lack of water in this area? I hope that there wouldn't be a no point of return because if once we reach that, uh, like, in humanity, that means we're all in a world of hurt because we all rely on water to survive. Um, it's quite alarming, and it's something that we need to address. Um, scientists need to be involved in this discussion, and we actually have to believe them, um, along with the indigenous voice, because we understand the complexity of the regions that we live in, um, because we aren't new here. We've lived here for thousands of years. And we understand that there's going to be droughts that take place. And um, we understand the land because we also know that we don't technically own the land. It has its own spirit, including water. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm from the Southwest and we have our water challenges, too, and some of which are directly related to what's happening there in Utah, where you and Darren are. And sometimes... When, when I really think about these issues, I, I just can't help but think that these desert regions were just never meant to accommodate such large numbers of people. And the natural water resources just aren't there. So it's only possible through the use of technology, engineering, and policy that we've gotten to the point that we can sustain life in these areas. But I'm really curious as to where we're headed. And Darren, I want to ask you, because like we see so often with, with natural resources, these issues, and the argument comes down to those on one side saying that conservation is the answer, 
while others say the solution is to just search out new sources of supply. So Darren, is it possible, do you think, to find a healthy balance between conservation and new sources of supply? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's possible and it, it's, it's not only possible, it has to be absolutely necessary. And so, uh, you know, when you ask that question to Tamara about uh, just that topic, it, it, it's, that's what's needed, uh, both on an extremely high level, but we also have to change our way of thinking. Uh, we can no longer just think we have an endless supply of this resource because we don't. And so until, you know, I, I always like to say that, you know, Western values uh, has taught us that we all have rights. We all have individual rights and, and extraction and depletion and that making a buck at the expense of things is okay as long as you get ahead in life. And, you know, I was grateful for a grandmother that taught me that indigenous values uh, promote our obligations, our obligations to the past, present, and future, and our obligations to the communities that we live in. So, you know, we've, we've got to make sure that we do those two things that you just mentioned. But we also have to completely change our mindset and, as stewards of this land. And until you do all three and practice all three, then uh, I, it's, it's always going to be a problem. Now, I always believe science is always going to figure out a way to make it work. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody in the next couple of years is going to die from start from not being able to have anything to drink. We always figure out a way, but it's always in when we're in crisis mode. And until we ch change the way we think about this, this resource that we have, which our people did for thousands of years, uh, you know, that we steward that resource in a way that it was always, uh, in a way that it was always there. And, uh, uh we just looked at the world. Our worldviews are different and until we as a society are willing to change the way we, like Tamara said, lawns, until we're willing to live without that type of thing and, and do other conservation things that are going to make a difference. But that's a complete paradigm shift. It's a mindset that we have to get back to. And uh, sure. we're going to have to get back to it. Okay. And Tamara, I want to ask you, because you're dealing with that there, folks that, that don't want to make these sacrifices. They want to have the green lawn. They want to have the swimming pools and whatnot. And Tamara, how close do you think residents are there to changing their mindset and taking a more conservationist approach to these water issues in that region? I think that there's a large group of individuals that are willing to try to do that because with the numerous discussions that I attended with the Iron County Water Conservatory uh, District and their open um, forums that they've had, a lot of a lot of community members have brought up conservation, and I think it's a mindset from the people that are leaders um, because they viewed it as something that wouldn't help this issue at all and they even stated that based off their calculations um, reducing lawn size like 
in Las Vegas. It, it just didn't help them with the water issue, but we see places like Las Vegas, these metropolitan areas, and it actually did help that conserve. Um, that pilot project that they had actually worked, and so they didn't need to go after the water in the basin that currently Iron County is going after. Okay. And, and Darren, you know, indigenous science and, and taking some of these different approaches, what, what are some options? What are some possible solutions to these water crisis issues there in Utah that indigenous science could address? Well, let me tell you one thing we're doing and we're actually, it's an example of maybe how we do things going forward. You know, there's four major tributaries that dump into the uh, Great Salt Lake and one of them being the Bear River. Well, there's a, so in 2018, we were able to purchase uh, the Bear River Massacre site. It was a massacre of our people. Uh, We believe more than 400 Shoshones were massacred in 1863 by the U.S. Army on the Bear River. And in 2018, we were able to purchase back that sacred site and uh, where the bodies still lie today. There's a, there's a tributary that dumps into the Bear River. We called it Beaver Creek. Uh, the settlers, after moving into the area, called it Battle Creek because it went through the heart of where those atrocities took place. And once we obtained that land back, we decided uh, we wanted to tell not only tell the story of the people with an interpretive center, but we want to restore the land to what it would have looked like in 1863 bringing back uh, willows and cottonwood and uh, getting rid of the invasive species that are there. Part of that project is is returning Beaver Creek to its natural, uh, where it flowed before. Uh, today, if you look at it, it looks like chocolate milk. That's the color because of the sediments that are in that water from upstream uh, agricultural practices that farmers have been doing for centuries for decades and so we've we've worked with the farmers we're working with uh, local groups conservation groups and we are returning that that watershed uh, we're cleaning it up we're reintroducing the beaver into the ecosystem we're slowing the water down spreading it out there's things we can do to um, put more water into the largest tributary of the Great Salt Lake, which is the Bear River. So we are, our, our goal is to put more clean water into that resource, reintroduce the Bonneville cutthroat trout, and do things, create riparian buffer zones, working with farmers to maybe farm differently, and agriculturists to do things differently than they've done for decades. And so I think there's things that we can do uh, the way our people did them before, allowing land to rest at certain times and and making sure that we're doing things in the proper way, uh, the way our people have done. And so we're, we really are trying to use this Bear River Massacre site as a model uh, for how we can clean up some of these tributaries uh, that dump into the lake and, and actually put more water into it and make more water available. Now, until we we decide we're going to conserve and do other things too you know it all plays it it is all important 
you can't have one of those pieces without the other. And so, you know, I think there's things we can do that we've been doing for decades. As Tamara said before, our people have lived here. They've lived this land. They know what those feasts and famines times look like. And, uh, but what never changed was our relationship to the land, our stewardship to the land, and how we viewed the lands with as much rights as anybody else. If you have a question or a comment for today's show, call in. 1-800-996-2848. You can also email us at comments at nativeamericacalling.com. We'll be right back after this short break. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to him that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and surrounding areas affected by drought and overuse of water resources. And we'd like to get your take. Join in by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Darren, before we went to break, you explained some successful approaches to water conservation using indigenous science. And I'm interested to know if elected leaders in Utah and other policymakers have been supportive of these efforts. You know, they have, and, and maybe not so much legislatures and the, the government itself, but we've worked really closely with Utah State University here in Logan. Uh, they're scientists, they're, they're uh, climate scientists and water scientists are actively involved in what we're doing. And we're using science to project models and what we can replant and what may not survive because of the climate change. And we're doing a lot of things to clean up this waterway with the scientists at Utah State University. But what we hope that translates into is good legislation going forward. You know, we need to revamp the whole water policy, way we use water with agriculturists and farmers. I mean, right now, you know, they have a water right and they use it. They use all of the water available to them because that's what the government has given them. And they're going to use it no matter what, even if it rained all day the day before. And so uh, we need to incentivize the, the government to help farmers relook at their use of water and give them credits for the water they don't use and keep in the system. And, you know, there's a lot of different things that, that like Utah State is developing and with smart agricultural practices that we can now take to the legislatures and start crafting bills and laws that will actually allow it to work going forward. But, you know, there's some work to do. And, and that's why the indigenous voice, though, is so important in all this. The science is just as important, but the, the indigenous mindset is equally as important. Tamara, do you feel that, that leaders in Utah, as well as federal leaders, are starting to understand the scope of this problem and acknowledging that water pipelines can't 
solve the whole crisis on their own. What, what are your thoughts on that? I I think that there are some of them that are understanding at alarming rates that pipelines aren't working and by diverting water, we're actually hurting the ecosystem and everything involved in it. But I also think one of the main issues is the prior appropriation uh, aspect model that they follow, which is like first in time, first right to use, which is is fine. But I know that maybe ranchers and farmers are hesitant to stop using the water and look at alternatives because of if they don't use it, their rights will be terminated. And that's just the model that was set up by the federal government. Uh, if you think about it, tribes have the first right of use because we've been here for thousands of years. And if we actually adjudicated and every single tribe properly adjudicated and accounted for the and quantified their water appropriately and how much they would actually use it for, um, tribes could actually, the way our laws are set up, um, in times of scarcity could tell ranchers and farmers, hey, what you're doing is not right. Um, so you need to stop using this water because there's plenty of case law out there that states this and that have, tribes have done this where they've stopped towns or ranchers from the use of water because they are the senior water holder. But tribes, just like my own band, have not adjudicated those rights or quantified those rights. And so we're in limbo. Is there an effort to to go ahead and educate those rights or, or what's the status on that there amongst your people? We're moving forward and trying to get our water um, adjudicated so that those rights are, are um, under federal reserve. Because uh, right now, because when Congress establishes a reservation, they also establish the water rights for those reservations. And that's basic case law and the winter's doctrine that all tribes uh, govern themselves under when it comes to water. So it's just um, understanding the complexity of water and then how to fight for that right and how to get it adjudicated. And honestly, you have to sue in federal court or you could sue in state court if you want. But it takes a lot of money and time to do this because it, it's not a quick fix. Right. Yeah, I would imagine it'd be a lengthy, costly process to adjudicate those rights as you describe. Darren, um, the Shoshone people, how did they traditionally access Great Salt Lake and, and other water resources there in Utah? Well, uh, you know, our, our southern boundary would have been the Great Salt Lake Valley, where the Mormon pioneers first arrived. So the majority of the lake would have been in what we call our indigenous territory. Uh, my grandmother talked all the time about the healing properties of the lake. You know, you look at it as a salty uh, lake, but it's full of other minerals. And so uh, she said that those waters held healing properties for our people, and they would soak in it all the time. And not only that, the plants that grew along the edges of the waters were used as medicines. And so uh, our creation story 
comes from Antelope Island, which is in the middle of the Great Salt Lake. So, you know, everything that we've we've known oral history-wise and the story of our people has to do with that, that body of water. And that's why it's so important to us that we make sure that we do everything we can to, to make sure it's saved and and we'll live on for for forever. And uh, no, that's about it. Now, Darren, if, if if nothing really is is changed and then uh, leaders just pretty much continue the status quo with how they're handling these water crisis issues, where do you see um, the situation in, in 20 or 30 years from now? What's it going to look like? What's Salt Lake going to look like? How much more of it is going to be uh, exposed? How much more will the, the shores recede? As well as other communities such as... Um, Cedar City that we're talking about today and other areas that are just facing this existential crisis with a lack of water. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty bleak, uh, something to look at, but, uh, you know, in not even 30 years, if we keep doing what we've doing, the lake has receded uh, 51% in the last, uh, three years. So, I mean, we don't need 30 to find out what's going to look, what that's going to look like. We need uh, three or four or five more years of drought like we've had and the same water usage we've had. And we're going to find out exactly what that means. You know, this past year, we were mandated to uh, one water our lawns for one day. And so, you know, when Tamara talked about green lawns, you know, some of these emergency measures going forward, they're going to tell us we can't water our lawns at all, which which is great and fine. But, you know, I, I live in a beautiful state. You know, people think the state of Utah is a desert, and a lot of it is, but there's a lot of beautiful places here uh, because of the water. And so uh, water is life, and it has been for all indigenous peoples. And uh, so, you know, is it going to look like a concrete jungle? Possibly. And, and if the only water that we have is, is water that we can drink and use that way, then, uh, you know, we're going to live in a society that probably a lot of us wouldn't prefer to live in. And so uh, it's highly important that we, uh, we have a voice at the table. And Tamara talked about it a lot. We've, we've never had a voice. And even though they're supposed to consult, we, they still don't consult. And so uh, until they're willing to sit down and include us at the table, I think they're going to get a lot of what they've always had. Well, and I want to talk about that, you know, a seat at the table. And, and Tamara, is there a way to get this message across to others to put pressure on elected leaders there to, to address this crisis, uh, even perhaps outside of Utah? efforts to to gain more attention to these issues right now uh, with a lot of issues that are going on um, nationally because there's the west um there was a water war here and there probably will always be a water war because it's so scarce and we never think about the repercussions of what water really is going to look like in a hundred years uh, will be will we be able to sustain life and that's that's a major issue um and i know political leaders have looked at it i think it's honestly 
um, the mindset of individuals, as Darren has stated previously. And it's trying to get them to think outside of the box. And because right now, if you think about it, they, they have this one particular mindset of what a beautiful home is supposed to look like, and that includes lavish lawn. Lawn is natural. It's something that we plant. Um, and it, honestly, if you think about it, it's kind of invasive because it, it takes over your property if you let it. And it's not like there, we're, as a society, growing the lawn to eat it. Um, but could you imagine if we changed our mindset and political leaders changed their mindset and we incentivized individuals to grow lavish gardens in their front yard and encourage that type of growth because ultimately you're feeding yourself if you garden and uh, it would just cure or it would it it might not cure but it might help mm -hmm. a lot of the issues that we're facing because we're having food scarcity right now and they're talking about it on a national level but no one's really having that discussion right right um and yeah, you know, I, I just I wonder. Like, do you ever get the sense that um, decision makers feel that this whole climate situation is going to turn around in the future and be more favorable, so that some of these water issues and things like that aren't going to be as big a threat? Do you think some folks are just kind of? betting on that, that things will improve and these issues are not going to just continue to spiral uh, out of control in the coming years? Do you ever, do you ever get a sense of that, Tamara? I, I think I do. And I think one of the major issues is the fact that there is no accountability, uh, not in that in the sense, but if you think about the waterways that we current, currently have, and if you look at a lot of reservations, um, uranium and uranium mining has ultimately killed water sources, and no one's ever been held accountable for that. Uh, you have thousands of people that are dying of cancer because of the lack of um, the lack of enforcement on reservations. So you have water, some water on these reservations that are undrinkable at this point because they're toxic. So that's what I mean by accountability. And I think that they also think that it might fix itself in the future. Um, but the issue at the root of it is, and and I've heard this, is that it won't happen in our lifetime. We're never going to see it. It's going to be an issue for our grandchildren at this point. Darren, it sounds like in addition to some of these legal remedies, like Tamara has talked about already on the show. Um, there's also a need for, for more education and awareness, I think, even. Is, are, are those efforts underway as well? Yes, they are. And, you know, I, I hadn't, you know, I gave that talk on the Great Salt Lake. It was called Healing the Bear River, Healing Great Salt Lake. And, you know, I haven't been uh, as, as a powerful a voice as I should have been with water advocacy. And I, it, after I gave that talk, I thought, you know what, this is, this is something that I need to take on. This is something that I need to champion going forward. And I had an aha moment of, of stewardship. And even though I've known my whole life, you know, how important water is and things, 
it's only come really clear in the last, you know, month or so that uh, unless people are willing to get out there and do something and 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 make their voices known, is are things going to change? And so uh, I'm one now. I'm totally on board, and I'm asking my science friends at Utah State, what kind of legislation can we propose to lawmakers? Because I have a, such a good relationship with a lot of the lawmakers in Utah because of my past work with them. And so I'm looking at ways that we can introduce uh, bills for next year's legislative session that will make it actually make a difference. It's not a Band-Aid and will make a difference because I think after we go through this summer, we're going to go through here in Utah. I just have a gut feeling that people are going to be ready for some uh, – stricter measures going forward and and i just feel like my indigenous voice is going to be important in in combining the science with this voice to try to make a difference and so uh, i'm committed at this point combining the science with the voice unfortunately we're now out of time and it's been a very enlightening discussion on the declining water level of the Great Salt Lake. Thank you, Darren Perry and Tamara Borchardt-Slayton, for a thoughtful overview on tribal efforts to address the growing crisis. We're back tomorrow with a live show discussing uranium mining cleanup and the billions of dollars coming available to create jobs and native-owned businesses in the coming years. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. CMS art pink to Tika, you to Katnik Sahalank, a projected Ika, your Katnik Dunafsni, Unom Kimirikina, Kanskut Kimuzvik Pnichalilan as Narito Vizari Kuvit, Paksuku Healthcare dot gov, Asukayaga Luku one eight Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.